You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello, this is Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. And uh, so today, I want to actually start by talking about um, some recent episodes that we have released at the time of this recording. Although I know that by the time that this comes out, there will have been several recordings previous to it. Yes. But I'm specifically referencing, we had some episodes come out um, where we had some interviews. And at the time that we did those interviews, we were not as good about how to use our microphones. Or our articulation. (laughs) That's true. And so unfortunately... I was a little bit disappointed when we were when we published those episodes to go back and listen and hear that some of the mics were really really low volume. So I apologize to our listeners. I hope that you were able to sort of work your way through that and and understand it and get some value out of it. And I'm also sort of tentatively committing to I might go back and try and re-edit these and make sure that I can equalize the volumes a little better and see if I can especially once we get some um better recording software I can revisit those and we're going to re-release them so that anybody who goes back to listen to them will have a more enjoyable listening experience. Abraham's committing to that. I don't know if I am for sure. Yeah. No, it sounds, sounds like something that would be smart to do, but maybe we just rehash the whole episode, right? That might be. And it certainly is probably worth having most of those people back on anyway, because we had some fantastic interviews and they had many, many other wonderful contributions to make to what we're up to here. Okay. So let's move on to what we're talking about today. And Before I even introduce the topic, you may have seen some of what we're about to talk about on TV. And of course, we always say you've probably read the title of this before we even started. But you may have seen on TV or read on the news or even met some people who they save and acquire so much stuff that you can't seem to really navigate their house or wherever it is that they keep these things. Maybe that's their junkyard. Yeah, it could be like private estate. A lot of people have a room or several rooms in their house dedicated to just holding random piles of stuff. Maybe it's their three-story brick building in New York City. And uh, That'll come back up later. Yeah, that's a good story. We're going to come back to Yeah. And so a lot of these people that you might have experienced or seen in these capacity they're described as having some level of attachment to things, material things, and they hold on to things way past the point at which they are functional, which is to say that they're no longer useful or really needed. And even sometimes those things were never useful or needed. Um, but especially one thing that's important in here that we'll get to a little bit more is that they may have been functional or needed at one point or may not have been. But when we're talking about this particular subject, that point that line has been crossed a long time ago yeah and so the functional part is key here right like yeah. if i'm acquiring a bunch of things like i'm elon musk and I have a bunch of teslas that doesn't really count sure or if i'm a farmer with all my my bountiful amounts of plants yeah that doesn't count either also those aren't kept around for very long presumably because they're being sold but still similar okay. idea all right it's all right i tried okay no, I think it's it's worth it's always a good idea to try and poke holes in things and see where it stops working because that's how we really understand that we know what the parameters of something are when we're trying to learn about it and discuss it and study it is we have to know where it starts and stops. Right? It's also probably an indication of the number of successful pop references that I'll have in this episode <laughs> being that's zero. Fair. That's okay. Okay. I like it. Okay. All right. So this has often been referred to as things like being a pack rat or a hoarder. Yeah, and this is currently talked about as a mental health disorder. And, I'm, yeah. and I don't phrase it like that to say that it's not a mental health disorder. I'm, I'm actually really characterizing that by saying that this has not always been described in that way. And that's where it's currently at, is that pattern of behaviors is described as a mental health disorder. Does it make sense? It does. Because I don't want to disparage the people who are in that and just say, well, you're just a terrible person. That's not what I'm saying. No, 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 not at all. Okay. So, and another thing is, if you saw the title of this, this is not to be confused with a actual pack rat, or also called a wood rat. A wood rat, yes. Yeah, and these are actual rats that are animals, and they the reason that their name has been associated with this 
type of behavior is because pack rats, the actual animal, are in fact nest builders and they just go around like collecting things to keep in their nest. And for some reason, they are apparently particularly fond of shiny things. And even to the point where if they're carrying stuff to go keep in their nest, they will mm-hmm. drop something and then pick up the new thing and take it instead. It's just really funny. And also I was thinking that 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 behavior of the thing that I have, I'm going to drop it and get that other thing instead. That would probably be different from a hoarder who I would think would actually grab a shopping cart and just take them both. Yeah. (laughs) That makes sense. And there's two things uh, as to why I wanted to talk about this. One is it was something on social media and we were trying to brainstorm some topics and Abraham was like, what do you want to talk about? But two, I had a family member jokingly when I was little call me a pack rat and it like devastated me for like all of like three minutes <laughs> and then I got my life together and it was it was I kind of like when I saw that I was like this is perfect we now have an outlet to talk about my pack ratness yeah at least at that stage of my life and you know when we started this podcast we said at the time nothing is off the table if it's related in any way to psychology in a way that we can understand it. Boom. So here we are. Yeah. So before we proceed into describing more of what being a hoarder or a pack rat really is, and we're going to use hoarder for the remainder of this episode because that's how it's described in the technical language. Yes. Which is funny that that's technical language, but that's where we're at, is that first we need to describe what a disorder is. And we've tackled that a little bit in previous episodes, and we are going to do a lot more on other disorders and what that means and probably even the DSM at some point. Yep. Um, but also, so we, we need to start by understanding what is a disorder so that we can approach hoarding as it relates to that feature. Yep. Okay. So we get to jump into the characteristics. Yeah. And so, yeah. And that, so that's the second part. And then how it comes about, how does it work and yeah. what we can do about it. So actually, I'll let's, just start this part here. Yeah. Let's dive into the history first. Sounds so good. So the actual term, technical term of hoarder was introduced, I found with the newest edition is there a revised edition? Not yet. Okay. The newest edition of the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, the fifth edition, which came out in 2013. And so for people who maybe don't know uh, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, or DSM, as we're going to refer to it for the rest of the episode, that's the the American Psychological Handbook for uh, identifying particular behaviors as being mental health disorders. Yes. So it is kind of uh, the the crucial resource that kind of ties together funding streams, diagnosis, and getting linked to resources for help. Yeah. All right. So I found that there was an article in 2010 that stated that research on hoardings increased uh, actually exponentially since publication of this operational definition, which was sometime around... It was beginning to be talked about before it was in the DSM. So it sounds like uh, mid-2000s to early 2010s, right, is where this started to really pick up in steam. Okay, so we need to start by understanding just what a disorder is and then how that relates to um, hoarding, okay? And so a disorder, as described by the American Psychological Association, and I have a link to that in the the show notes, is that a disorder is, is distress or problems functioning in social work or family activities. Okay. And so again, that is that a disorder is any pattern of behaviors that prevents a functionally adaptive pattern of behaviors from prevailing. So you can't go throughout your day in the way in which you'd really like to. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. You have your quality of a life is affected by some uh, pattern of behaviors or way of being. um, And that includes all mental health, right? Um, that that again, that prevents you from having that quality of life because uh, of the things that you do inside of that disorder. So all of these disorders will have that core feature of it's going to impact your functional living, right? So day living, and that's one of the major distinctions here is like people will do quirky, weird things, and a lot of times we throw around these terms like oh they're they're OCD or that person has crazy anxiety or whatever it's going to be, or we yeah. call them a schizo or bipolar, mm-hmm. and that really doesn't refer to what the technical meaning of those things is, and in a way kind of downplays the experience of people who really do suffer from those type of disorders, yeah. but. When we characterize a pattern of behavior as being a disorder, it's only a disorder because it impairs your ability to have that, again, sort of what might be described as healthy functional living. Okay? All right. All right. Now, what's implied in that in in a way, and again, not that I have a problem with this definition. I think it's fine and perfectly serviceable, but again, poking holes in things. Mm -hmm. What's implied is that then 
normal people or people who would not be characterized as having a disorder, that would imply that they all have these functional adaptive skills. Yeah. Right. Um, otherwise, if everybody had it, then it wouldn't actually be considered a disorder because it would be the common way of being like that's yep. just the human experience as everybody does this. That's not a disorder. This is being human. Okay. Now again, so that people, um, that also implies that people with what might be called mental health disorders, um, and behaviors associated with those disorders are not functional and adaptive, or at least not functional in that quote unquote healthy way. Right. And that it very well might be the case that there are people who would not have a diagnosis, but lack important functional adaptive skills. And on the flip side of that, that there are people who might have mental health disorders, but actually have a lot of these functional adaptive skills. Yeah. And it's not necessarily black or white. Like if you have one of these skill, one of these behaviors that gets in the way that all of a sudden you are no longer part of the normal group. And this is why we have so many issues when it comes to funding and Dying. all the talks that come up when we're talking about mental health. Oh, and diagnosis right. and uh, just in general, Everywhere. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So when we're talking about hoarding specifically, we're talking about a pattern of behaviors that includes acquiring and keeping things and a tendency specifically to avoid getting rid of things, um, in particular, throwing things away or giving them away. Yeah. It's usually a particular thing, right? Or it can be restricted to particular things. Uh, it can be. Um, for a lot of people, it's a kind of a mishmash, but there are specific types of hoarding that we're going to talk about. Going back to that idea of sort of poking holes in some of these things is what about people who collect books or people who have a large collection of wine, for example, like people have like a wine cellar and they have hundreds and hundreds of bottles of wine that they're never going to drink that in their lifetime, but they have them there. Or, I mean, you could drink that. Come on now. Uh, I guess. Yeah, that could be. <laughs> what about, <laughs> what about all of the like board games? that maybe Abraham has at his house. That that could be one. I'm going to bring that up when we a little bit later. Okay. Um, people who maybe collect movies, who uh, have a lot of memorabilia around things like photos. What about people who are really handy and they have a ton of tools? Ooh. Yeah. And so again, we're getting, we're getting toward this where we need to find those non-examples. These are things that people acquire, books, alcohol, movies, photos, tools, and they have a tendency to avoid throwing them away. Now, that comes back to the important point that we made earlier about the fact that they, they go past that they are functionally useful and needed and valuable. Yep. Presumably things like all of the things that I just mentioned, those are going to maintain their value for an almost indefinite period of time. Now, of course, it might be something like I'm going to get a textbook in a language I can't read about a subject I know nothing about, and I'm going to just have piles and piles of those kind of books that might then fall into that category of hoarding. And again, it's not the fact that it's a book that makes it useful. It's when we're talking about how you as a person relate to those items. Okay. And then just asking those questions like, are you a hoarder if you keep clothes for more than a year? Interesting. Because most of us have clothes that we've had for more than a year, right? I have clothes that I've had for far more than a year. Like right. Does sometimes that... like eight or ten. And so do you, does that characterize it as hoarding? I might be a level eight or ten hoarder. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I mean, perhaps depending on whether or not they're functional or not anymore, right? Right, and that and that's the important point. And so for the most part, no. Most people keep their, their clothes for a long period of time. And for a lot of things that actually might be recommended, it's probably in your best interest financially to not be throwing away your materials yeah. that quickly uh -huh. if they're still being useful. Okay, let's move on to... So that's a, lot of whole, a whole bunch of non-examples about what hoarding is not. And so let's talk about sort of the prevalence and a little bit more about what is actually going on with this um, hoarding type behaviors. So there are some estimates that I saw from 0.4% of the population to 4 to 5% of the population. And so we're talking about millions and millions of people up to... I think I saw 16 million people in the United States alone. Yeah, I saw... Between two and five percent of the population, two and six percent of the population. Um, part of this is, I think, varying because of not a clear, concise definition. And then it was called one thing, now it's something else, right? Right. Um, and I saw a, a TEDx talk that com said it was a equated to about the combined population of Chicago and New York City. Well, another part of this, as I think you, you sort of alluded to, is how do you go about measuring this? Because you have to have a definition to do this. And how many cases are there that go undetected for a long period of time? Yep. Like what if there are people who are hoarders, they are they, they find a way to deal with this or they get treatment of some kind and then they no, are no longer hoarders. And that never fell into the equation of measuring how many people were hoarders. Now, when we were talking about this as a mental health condition, um, 
that's it's described as this it these people who uh, would be described as being hoarders that they have difficulty making decisions about material possessions specifically with whether or not they should be acquired and whether or not they should be thrown away or gotten rid of in some capacity. Yeah. And so there is a difference in here between what might be called hoarding and what might be called collecting. Yes. Right. And so people who obtain things specifically as part of a sort of categorical theme, and they are often proud to display these sort of things, and they um, these things hold a lot of value for one reason or another. They might be sentimental or academic or actually monetarily valuable. So all my journal articles or my books over here or all of my different... Uh, Possibly. <laughs> or my... Uh, ticket stubs and all those things I've gotten from concerts, right? Yeah. And so some of those have sort of like a sentimental value to you, but also hoarders will keep things like a empty tin can and a old tag off of a piece of clothing that was obtained from a department store or something. Or a bunch of cats. Or a bunch of cats. Yeah. Animal hoarding is its own thing. We'll get to. Um, previously, in earlier editions of the of the DSM, hoarding was referred to as an obsessive compulsive disorder subtype. Yep. They have since done enough research that they have decided that it no longer really um, had the characteristics belonging to obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD and really that it was separate enough both in symptoms and as well as the treatment that would normally work for OCD that they really needed to be separated and distinguished as being different things. And so there was a quote here from a guy named uh, Hale and he said, quote, the current line of thinking from the research is that hoarding is a neuropsychiatric condition linked to processing challenges, trouble with the connections and functionality of emotional, visual and organizational areas of the brain, end quote. Yeah. And so anyway, again, it's that there, what's going on with this particular pattern of behaviors I go back and forth between wanting to call it a pattern of behaviors and a mental health disorder because, I mean, they really imply the same thing, but some of one of them is more technically specific and one of them is more sort of generally the way that we might talk about it. Yeah. I don't know. Just keep flip flopping. Okay. No, we mean the same thing when you're listening. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But anyway, the point being that these are now considered distinguished things by the people who do research in this area and also that having separated them might actually now lead to further research to allow us to better understand what is going on with uh, hoarding disorder because it's just not the same thing as people who experience obsessive compulsive disorder that especially is around a different variety of patterns of behavior. Yes. Okay. Now, another thing is a lot of people talk about this as having a genetic component. Which kind of makes sense, right? Ish. (laughs) Well, Well, if you look at it from the the angle of like, oh, there might be this evolutionary benefit to collecting lots of things. Okay, that's a great point. And so there many people have argued that as a species, generally collecting resources has has allowed us to survive in um, periods of time of scarcity. Exactly. Yes. We have more, it it could be things like weapons or, and, or probably food more than anything and stuff to keep us warm that holding onto that stuff, it continues to maintain that value. Important distinction there. Um, But that, that does have a a component in what may have helped lead to the survival of our species over time. Okay. That's fine. You might also see that potentially people of families might also be more likely to have similar patterns of behavior, which in and of itself does not necessarily speak to a genetic component. And I want to just go back, throw way, way, way back to when we very first started (laughs) and we talked about genes and how they work. And again, just stressing that genes code for amino acid sequences of proteins. They don't code for things like I'm going to acquire a whole bunch of bowling balls and keep them (laughs) in my house. Like genes don't know what bowling balls are, right? Genes... (laughs) I love this. I love this. <laughs> Genes don't know what what books are like, and they don't care, and they don't even necessarily care about things like having a lot of something and losing things that are materialistic objects. So I don't think that genes can necessarily play a significant role, at least in what the hoarding behavior ends up looking like. And I again, only insofar as acquiring things seems to have a uh, a pleasant association to it maybe 
Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. And Maybe. so I think, <laughs> unfortunately, the evidence is there in in a little bit of a speculative way and a correlational way, but it doesn't make conceptual sense right now to make that argument. And again, what you might have, one of the things you might see is you might sequence the genome of every single person who's ever hoarded and say there is a statistically significant correlation of this gene with this particular pattern of behavior. Well, here's a couple things about that. One, if it's a causal relation, then that gene has to be present really in all of them. Because otherwise, it wouldn't account for the ones where that gene wasn't present. And exactly. if I were to only take those people, then how do I now explain this if it's no longer the genetic component? Hashtag correlation. <laughs> yes. That's one thing. And I mean, that's a little bit of a spurious argument just because there are going to be things where it's complicated. But another another one that's important is that what we do has an effect on how our genes are expressed. So why we do what we do has to do with why we do what we do. <laughs> In a very circular way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's a circular <laughs> argument to make for that. Well, the, the point being that... If you take it literally, I was referencing what you were oh, talking about. Oh, I see. About. I get it. I yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but the experiences <laughs> that we have and the things that we do that affects the way that our genes are expressed. And then again, after that, the, our, the way that our genes are expressed affects the things that we do and the way that we experience the world in this really dynamic, interactive way of being. Yeah. Right? That's our, that yeah. part of a living organism has that for the most part. Mm -hmm. Okay. Agreed. So what might happen is that people who are engaging these hoarding behaviors, that's pretty similar in a lot of ways across all of the people who are doing hoarding. Otherwise, it would be really difficult to categorize this as any kind of disorder because they'd be so different from one another that we couldn't lump them together. But presumably, they're similar enough that what might be happening is that the way that their genes are being expressed is affected by the kinds of behavior that they're engaging with in the first place. And maybe there's a cause effect relationship there. Maybe not. Either way, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about why it's happening or what we could do to treat it. Presumably, we wouldn't say, you're a hoarder, you need gene therapy. Here, I'm going to inject you with this and change the way your genes are being expressed. I mean, maybe someone would have that approach. But I, the problem is that that's not going to change all of the other variables that are associated with this, which I'm getting ahead of myself because we're going to talk about more how this develops and why it maintains. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I just, I saw this, there's so much information on well, information. There's so many opinions about this being <laughs> a genetic thing and I'm just trying to figure out where they're coming from and none of it really made good scientific sense to me. Yeah. And it's such an easy fallback to when we don't understand something, we go, must be the genes. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Take a breath. Are you good? I'm good. Okay. Okay, so... Episode 13, if you want to really dive into that. Thank you. That was genetics and epigenetics, which we didn't talk about here. And you're going to have to just go over there to listen to it if you want to. And again, audio quality, not as good as it is now. But it makes you appreciate this quality so much more. Sure. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that you might be wondering, at least I hope you're maybe wondering, is how would you know if someone was a hoarder without specifically walking into their house and looking around. And even if you did, you might walk into their house, look around, and not necessarily be able to make that determination. So maybe use the hoarding rating scale interview. Uh, yes, exactly right. And so- um, Or the hoarding assessment scale, or the UCLA hoarding severity scale, or the clutter image rating, <laughs> See, which is a weird named one. Kind of is. So the point that Ryan is making- Or the activities of daily living scale, or the saving- cognitions inventory or the children's saving inventory or the compulsive acquisition scale or that's the last one there's no more ors okay i have to cut some of that <laughs> anyway the point that you're making ryan is that there are these questionnaires for the most part that are based on interviewing people and now some of them are based on actual observations yes and but again the anchors that they rate those observations to are arbitrarily decided and maybe in a meaningful way but still arbitrary at some point they had to draw a line and say this is what we'd call hoarding but if we got rid of this one scrap of paper it wouldn't quite be there right so there and there's going to be some gray area in there but for the most part they did have to sort of draw a line and say this is hoarding this is not and that is ultimately an arbitrary decision to make, which is okay. It can yes. still be useful and arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Now, again, going back to the fact that a lot of these are going to be these questionnaires. And so straight from the American Psychological Association, some of the questions that I saw that they might ask someone to try and determine whether or not they are hoarders is something like, do you have trouble discarding or recycling, selling, or giving away things that most other people would get rid of? Another one is, to what extent do you buy items or acquire free things you do not need or have enough space for? It's I don't like 
I don't know if people would give honest answers to these yeah. or necessarily how they go about calibrating the answers. What was that, what was that last one? To what extent do you buy items or acquire free things you do not need or um, have enough space for? So all of my hats are now in <laughs> trouble. <laughs> Ryan, you do leave a lot of hats yeah. laying all over the place. <laughs> okay. And then there's other, other things that are more related to the aspect of a disorder, such as how much do these symptoms interfere with school, work, or social life, and things like that. And, and then, that functional part's back. Right, yeah. Coming there back we go. to that. Okay, now, the, I saw some really conflicting information about how often hoarders really experience anxiety, pain, sadness, that kind of thing. And um, some people reported that a lot of time hoarders, they don't actually experience any psychological distress and they aren't really distinguishable from the normal community, uh, which in my thought means that this isn't necessarily meeting the definition of a disorder. Their quality of life is not necessarily impacted. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Yeah. Um, but that they might experience some kind of distress if then someone comes over to their house or something like that. So, and that we'll get to the characteristics of this in just a moment, but... Um, for people who have done research on hoarding and the relative level of emotions that are felt around this, there was one study that was done. I don't remember the year exactly, um, but they it was more than five years ago, but I think it was within about six years. Okay, so they were doing brain scans of people who were hoarders and people who were not hoarders, and that uh, people who were hoarders were reporting more anxiety sadness and indecisiveness during the experiment when they were simply shown images of material objects. Okay. And when they were having those brain scans done, the scanners revealed a unique part of electrical activity in two parts of their brains, specifically the anterior cingulate cortex and insula. Um, among, so th that part of the brain does a lot of things, but one thing that is associated with the activity in that part of the brain includes things like monitoring errors, assessing risk, and otherwise processing unpleasant things like fear and sadness and depression and all of those sort of things. And that was from a, I read that in a Scientific American article on this, which is also linked in the show notes. Nice. Yeah. Solid resource. Right. Yeah. They, they do pretty good stuff over there. Yeah. And, um, Anyway, the point being that they were seeing this increased amount of activity in that part of the brain. Again, similar to the genetic argument, whether that's a cause-effect thing, we don't really know. It's a correlational thing. So again, if we think about when someone is doing something, the brain is going to be showing exactly the kind of pattern in neurology as yeah. the thing that they're doing, including mm -hmm. when they are thinking about doing that thing, which is acting on sort of a very small private scale, Yes. right? But should otherwise involve very similar things. Yeah. And we know this is a thing. Yes. Yeah. That happens. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that that particular brain is the reason that they have that experience or that the activity there does. Yeah. Right? It's a part of that experience in this larger context of being a human. Yes, exactly. So it's involved. It is part of that experience. It is it f changes that affect the way that that part of the brain processes information um, are also going to affect the way that that organism experiences the world. And the world is also going to affect that part of the brain that processes those experiences. So again, that reciprocal dynamic relationship, that's really complicated. <laughs> you just summarized in a qu quick sentence, everything we talk about on the podcast. Sweet. Done. Job over. This is our last episode. Good night. All right. See y'all. <laughs> um, okay. Let's get into those four characteristics. Okay, and so um, I'm going to get more. So the DSM has a specific set of characteristics, but here, here are some like general ways of thinking about them. So basically they go like this. Um, the inability to get rid of things. And associated with that is the inability to stop acquiring things, but that's actually not part of the actual diagnosis. So let's just stick with the inability or the reluctance to get rid of things. So you're often stockpiling or buying items that have no immediate use or value. Yeah. Value is important here. Yeah. And one thing that happens is you'll see people who they will buy things that are on sale, even when it's stuff that they could never need or use. So like I might shoes. Uh, well, you might use shoes, but I'm thinking like if I lived alone and I was a hoarder and I was buying like 12 year old girl outfits that were on sale that I'm never going to wear, I'm never going to take out of the packaging, but I'm acquiring them because they were on sale that it's that I'm getting a lot of bang for my buck. Right. So there's, there's the increased, or I guess what you might perceive as increased monetary value of those things because you get them at a discounted price. Yeah. 
like you never know when am I gonna need this <laughs> jumpsuit for twelve. Maybe that's girl. just really good anchoring in action. Uh, ooh, good plug, reference to for a future episode. Yeah, upcoming episode. Very cool. Um, okay. The second one is that the junk is disorganized. Now, again, this actually isn't really related to the DSM's uh, criteria for this. And what's really weird about this is this seems completely irrelevant. If you if you were to have a completely organized house that's stuffed to the brim with random junk, but you've that's got called it, a good, solid inventory for a new business. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's like you might you might have all your junk alphabetized. But another thing that was discussed in, in one of the articles that I read was that a lot of times people, they know how to navigate their mess pretty well. Yeah. So they like, they might have a receipt that they put in a pile of things over here. That's not actually receipts, but they know how to go back and find it later yeah. because all of those cues exist in a, in a network of other cues and relations that are meaningful to them and how they navigate their exactly. world. Exactly. The cues are so interesting when we talk about this sort of stuff, right? Right. Yeah, yes. it's that interrelated component of how they exist inside of what those cues mean to them. For someone else, yeah. they go in, it just looks like chaos. Yeah. But someone who lives in this environment probably experienced this as an almost like normal, natural, very useful environment. It's yeah. very functional. Yeah, exactly. Things are categorized in a way that at least makes sense to them at, yeah. on some level. Okay. So in my, in my job, I have a box of papers. Okay. There's a lot of important papers in there. Okay. And like things I need, not not like uh, like that can't be publicly out there, but like they're typically things like making curriculum changes or things that were like old meeting notes. So it's like, let's not lose that, bring that back next year. Sure. And they're a complete hot mess, but I organize them in a certain way, kind of chronologically and by function to where I can find anything. I just need to kind of know the personal algorithm. But people look at that box and they're like, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> and yeah. like I can find something like that. Yeah, so I don't, I don't feel like this junk is disorganized component of it is really that important. It's like my Monica's closet. <laughs> yeah, that's a <laughs> good pop reference to friends. <laughs> okay, another one is that the hoarder feels ashamed. And so this one's actually relatively important going back to this idea of how this is a uh, a disorder, a mental health yep. disorder, um, and how they might experience these negative emotions, things like shame, anxiety, that sort of thing. Okay. Yes. And what I think is a useful way of characterizing this, um, and I found this on this uh, this cool website, um, uh, How Stuff Works, and they have a whole bunch of podcasts yeah. that they do. I saw this as well, this, this feedback loop concept. Yeah, yeah. There's this idea of this feedback loop where let's start with first, hoarding feels good. And we'll get into why in a moment. But for this person, hoarding, acquiring things, storing them, that feels good at least in a way, right? They like doing it. And so doing it brings this uh, this pleasant sensation or other pleasant yeah. emotional, whatever. The second part of this is that shame, this part of it that is associated with stress and anxiety and feeling bad about the fact that they do these behaviors, that obviously doesn't feel good. That feels the opposite of good. That feels bad. That was a stupid sentence, but there it is. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore... If, no, no shame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Therefore, if they do more hoarding, that can make the shame go away by adding more of that good feeling. Temporarily. 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 Exactly. Because what happens is so they have they acquire this stuff, they it feels good initially, they look around at what they have and they think about maybe having other people over or what someone might say if they came into their house, they feel bad about that. And so in order to feel good, they go get more stuff. And then they goes in their house and the cycle continues, right? Yeah. It's this weird sort of feedback loop thing that can happen. All right. And the last one, the fourth one on here is that, and this is, again, very important coming back to the whole purpose of what a diagnosis is or what a disorder is, is that the junk significantly impacts the hoarder's quality of life. And so if we're looking at this as a mental health disorder, a characteristic should presumably include the fact that people who are suffering from this are likely to avoid social situations, avoid activities with other people that are generally necessary for what you might consider to be a healthy quote unquote life. Yes. And I, that whatever last that part, means. yeah, whatever that means that that's important because that might be different for different people. They might feel like they're living a healthy, fulfilling life. Yeah. But in that case, it probably wouldn't be characterized as a disorder. 
difficult to say, you know, because I think that probably still some people would say that it is if they are in danger, presumably of piles of things falling over on top of them and killing them, which is also true of like even a bookshelf that's not anchored to the wall. Yeah. Like you have very little stuff, but all the things you do have are on one bookshelf that's really tall and then it happens to fall over and kill you still wouldn't qualify necessarily as a hoarder in that particular case. Right? Yeah. Okay. Dig. So what are some, I actually mentioned some things that people could hoard that wouldn't necessarily be considered hoarding if they were still useful. Like a car collection, <laughs> paintball guns, yeah, drumsticks. Maybe. Um, but what are some things that people do legitimately hoard? I think anything can count, right? Yeah, pretty much. So cars, People can guns, hoard cars, uh, especially when you get like old sticks. used car parts um, that pile up. Um, newspapers is extremely common. Newspapers and magazines. A lot of people who are hoarders have just stacks and stacks of old newspapers and magazines. Does it count if I hoard video files because I record everything in my life? Probably not yet, but I wonder if that would be included in like the future as things become more and more digitized. Yeah. They're look at people will look at your uh, your cloud account and look at how <laughs> organized or disorganized and how cluttered all of your files and folders are. That'd be funny. A year not ago, I had one terabyte of like storage and data for all the video stuff I'm doing. Oh, let me guess. 10. I've acquired 10 more. Okay. <laughs> yes. And I've filled like 9 of those. Jeez. Crazy, right? Uh that was a good guess on my part because I literally was just ballparking it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're pretty pretty much spot on. I, I bought 12 terabytes, but I filled 10-ish. Nice. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, that's like a throwback to grad school, man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> used to say that way back in the day, which was a Wednesday, by the way. Yeah. <sighs> All right, All right. So <laughs> some other things that people... Cut all that out. Yeah. Some other things that people hoard include... Um, actually, books can still count. What about kites? Kites could count. People hoard musical instruments. People hoard medications and like other pharmaceutical things, either over the counter or prescription. And then one of the saddest ones probably is that people can hoard animals. And um, when I moved to Florida to go to grad school initially, there was actually the day that I moved there in the newspaper, there was a story about someone who had recently been caught hoarding snakes that they were collecting from the Everglades. What? Yeah. And it was like- How many? It was thousands oh of snakes my gosh. in the house. Yeah, most most of them were dead, um, but many of them, ugh, man, and they apparently the smell was just overwhelming for Goose people bolts. who were trying yeah. to clean out the place. Um, well, and the other thing, that person ended up getting charged with hundreds of counts of animal cruelty because they may have felt like they were doing it because they wanted to protect the snakes, but yeah. ultimately when people are hoarding animals, they always end up in these really, really poor living conditions that seriously deteriorates the animal's health and quality of life. Yeah. So that's just, maybe that's for another part, but okay. I've been talking a lot and we've been basically spouting facts for just 40 straight minutes or so. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time. So let's, uh, let's take a little break for a story. Okay, story time. And I'm going to intro, or I'm going to insert some music in here, or you can do sound effects with your mouth. Okay. So. Story time. <laughs> okay, so back in the early 1900s-ish, maybe mid-1900s, there were these two brothers who lived in New York, okay? And uh, they were home, uh, their names were Homer and Langley, and their last name was Collier. And that name might ring a bell for you, and I'll come up with <laughs> why in a moment. Um, but what happened was uh, one of them, I believe it was Langley, was blind, and the other one, his brother, took care of him. And his brother was a hoarder. Yes. And he was just, and this is in the, like 1947 is when they died. Uh, what happened was um, the, the one who was the hoarder, uh, part of the junk pile did fall on him and ended up killing him. And his brother, who was blind and hadn't left the house in who knows how long, he ended up starving to death because he couldn't navigate the world on his own and wasn't able to get food. And, yeah. and so he ended up dying. And so they died in 1947. And um, when they died and they went into their house, the, the crews came in to like get them out of the house and they found over 120 tons worth of junk in their house that's insane that i mean this is like God. a three-story place right um i think is what i read yeah something like that it was it was, it was an impressive sized mansion yeah and it was just but 120 filled. tons that's so much what was in there um okay so uh they it took them a long time to actually uncover um one of the corpses 
And uh, and as a fallout for this, they ended up. This has sometimes been referred to as like Collier sin, the Collier brothers syndrome. Yeah. Also, um, if you see things that are really messy and cluttered, you might call this like a Collier's uh, mess or something like yeah. that. So some of the things that they found, I'm going to go ahead and read this right off of Wikipedia because um, I, I was looking up various articles and this was the most thorough and the most succinct somehow. Um, and so here's what they found. Quote, baby carriages, a doll carriage, rusted bicycles, old food, potato peelers, a collection of guns, glass chandeliers, bowling balls, camera equipment, the folding top of a horse drawn carriage, which <laughs> I don't know how they even got that. <laughs> A sawhorse, three dressmaking dummies, painted portraits, photos of pinup girls from the early 1900s, plaster busts, Mrs. Collier's hope chests, rusty bed springs, the kerosene stove, a child's chair. And there's various child's thing, which yeah. is kind of weird because they didn't Neither have any kids and they children. were lifelong bachelors. Yeah. <laughs> um, more than 25,000 books, including thousands about medicine and engineering and more than 2,500 on law. Human organs pickled in jars. That is insane. <laughs> yeah. Hoarding pickled organs in jars. Yeah, human organs, like body parts. Yeah, I know. Uh, there were eight live cats. Um, the chassis of an old Model T that one of them had been tinkering on. Uh, tapestries, hundreds of yards of unused silk and other fabrics. Clocks, 14 pianos. <laughs> Uh, clavichord, two organs, banjos, violins, bugles, accordions, a gramophone and records, and countless bundles of newspapers and magazines, some of them decades old, and then thousands and thousands of bottles and tin cans, and then just tons of other garbage. How do you think that all got in there? I mean, just over time. I, I, I that's It had to be the case that they were just bringing stuff into the house relatively consistently. And man... Imagine if they had Amazon. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> like subscribe and save everything on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Bring it on. Uh, so I saw an estimate that put their estate at over a million dollars in today's uh, value. It was about $91,000 at the time at which it was found. Yeah, I mean, you listed a lot of stuff. I could believe that. Yeah, right. Just so many pianos. Why so many pianos? Um, but anyway. So it was called Collier Syndrome because of this story of these two gentlemen and this basically this case study, right? Ish. Yeah. I don't even know if it was really study, but like. Yeah. I mean, mostly just a description of something that happened yeah, and is now associated with just probably. really messy, cluttered hoarding type behaviors. Now, it's mo not really described that way anymore, but you might hear it here and there in various vernacular. So. Okay, let's All right, take, so let's let's use this to shift into some of the myths, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So, one thing that you might have heard, or there there are some myths around, is that hoarding affects only old people. And what is a misconception about this is hoarding isn't something that you go from like zero to sixty on, right? It's you generally build up more and more and more stuff. So what happens is it looks like older people are hoarders because they've been alive longer, they've been yeah. doing it longer. Mm -hmm. So people who are currently in the process of of hoarding and they're really at the same level that those older people were or are at, uh, they will eventually be there. And then it'll look again like old people are hoarders when really they've been doing it their whole lives. Right. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. It's not actually that old people are hoarders. Kind of anybody that has the capacity to acquire stuff and store it can yeah. be a hoarder. So another one that I've heard is hoarders are too lazy to clean. Yeah, and actually, again, this is almost the opposite of true. Hoarders are often very, I don't want to say fastidious, but they can be very precise in how they go about stuffing things into particular nooks and crannies and how they organize it. And so they, they actually can be kind of busybodies and going about moving junk about their house. They just don't want to get rid of it. Yeah. Okay. Another one is that hoarding is relatively recent and maybe even brought on by like documentaries and TV shows. Ooh, so it's like one person documented it as a thing and now it's a thing that everyone else is doing? Yeah, or at least like relatively recent coverage of this event made it become more of a phenomenon that just sort of happened because we're in this decadent contemporary society, maybe. I'm not just totally sure. Things are everywhere and we can acquire as much as we want. Yeah, it's all Amazon's Hashtag fault. America. Yeah, America. <laughs> okay. Um, but actually there is some documentation to really suggest that people have been doing this for at least a couple of centuries. And I mean, it is recent in the sense that you could only be doing this in the extent to which there were commodities that were available to be doing this with. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, but 
it's not to say that this only happened in the last 20 or 25 years, or yeah. maybe even 30 years. Or if you go back all, all the way to the 40s, it was still happening even more than a century before that. Yeah, I'm sure you can find kings that would have been largely labeled as a hoarder. Yeah, probably point, right? anybody who was sufficiently wealthy and enjoyed just acquiring things and spending money on stuff wherever they could might have actually met the definition of a hoarder in some of these capacities. All right. Another, Next one. Another one is this idea that hoarders, that they do the things that they do. They, they, they keep the stuff and they refuse to throw it away because they experienced some level of extreme deprivation early in their life. Now, kind of reminds me of the genetic argument. I'm like, right. seems a little bit like it's pretty far fetched and stretching. Well, and then the the evidence just doesn't pan out. There are yeah. people who have never really experienced serious depression. Part of part of this goes back to the idea of during the Great Depression. I meant earlier to say deprivation. Um, during the Great Depression, that um, these people who experienced that, and again, so they sort of hit both angles. They're old now, and they experienced this time where you saved everything you could because it was so hard to acquire things. Not really the case. People of many ages, of many backgrounds, of many circumstances could end up being hoarders. That particular circumstance. Now, I think it's worth saying that it's possible that maybe some people who had experiences with extreme deprivation, that they may have become hoarders down the road. And that was a contributing factor to that. Mm -hmm. But that's actually not to say that most people who are hoarders, that that was their background or that that would necessarily lead to hoarding behaviors. All right, dig. And we have one more here, right? Yeah. And that's the idea that you can cure hoarding by just throwing away everything that they've got. Yeah. And now it sounds like a very uh, topical kind of just band-aid over a hemorrhage sort of solution. Exactly. So that's the the problem is that you're you're not the people who might have that thought is that you're not acknowledging the how this came to be in the first place. Exactly. This wasn't a one-off type of thing. Pres yeah. These people have been doing this. This pattern of acting has been there for quite a while for them. If they've been able to get to the point where you could diagnose it and notice that it's there, right? So this is a systematic pattern of behaviors. And if you just throw it away, like they're still have all of the same patterns of behavior, all the same relevant cues that are in their environment, that they're probably going to go back to just doing the same thing that they were doing. So the solution is not just throw it all out. Everything must go right. Yes, exactly. Okay. So do we have, uh, some research on this? So I looked up a little bit. This is more outside the scope of the things I typically engage in, so I can just kind of share some resources. So yeah, there's one article I found on the, in the Journal of Clinical Psychology and Sessions, so it's an applied um, article, and they list out what I, what I mentioned earlier, a bunch of different things when it comes down to the different scales that are used for assessment. There's a lot of them, UCLA, hoarding severity scale, hoarding assessment scale, clutter image rating, um, activities of daily living scale, et cetera. There's a bunch in here, and essentially, they were interested in as this definition shifts and changes over time and it was uh, as it was acquired in the dsm-5 like what are we going to do next when it comes to assessing and treating and helping these these folks out and it's uh kind of largely two things there's some general recommendations on how to look at the assessment of this but it's also largely like hey, this is so different or so new in the way that we've separated this from OCD in the past that there's a lot of work to do now, which you were kind of talking about earlier, right? Yeah. So essentially they say there's, I'm going to quote this, there's a number of self-report interview and observational measures that now exist for the assessment of hoarding and related problems and that they recommend those specifically designed and validated for hoarding in clinical practice. On both clinical and research grounds, we discourage use of hoarding subscales embedded within instruments designed and validated for OCD. Got it. All right, so. So basically almost starting over on how we're gonna diagnose this thing. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that was my understanding. It is now a thing and we need to kind of restart. Right, and that is to say that there actually is kind of a ton of research on this, both before the diagnosis changed to being not an OCD uh, subcategory, so mm -hmm. when it was still under that headline, and now research that's emerged since that. And a lot of it is really interesting examining various elements of what's going on neurologically, behaviorally, what's working for treatment, how prevalent it is. Um, and and so there's a lot of things, but there was one in particular that I found that I really just liked the way that they that this was summarized. This was looking at the research that exists on this. So okay. this is sort of a Great. summary of that. And so they said, quote, some evidence based on brain 
lesion case studies also suggests that the anterior ventromedial prefrontal and cingulate cortices may be involved in abnormal hoarding behaviors. But interestingly, and I'm not, I'm going off script here from the, the quote, so we'll say end quote. But interestingly, even though there is some of that research to suggest that that part of the brain might be involved, a little bit in contradiction with some of the other research saying that yep. other parts of the brain, and again, in a way, the whole brain is involved. But anyway, there are people who have suffered similar injuries to those that are seen in the lesions of the brains of people who are hoarders, and yet they don't have the same types of behaviors as the people who hoard compulsively. So it's difficult to say why would you have the same type of brain pattern and, and brain lesions specifically yeah. damage that part of your brain and have completely different outcomes if that brain region was specifically associated with it. And the reason that I like this is because they said specifically, quote, thus making the involvement of these brain structures unclear, end quote. And that's exactly what I needed them to be able to say to acknowledge there might be more going on here and that it's difficult to isolate any particular activity to any one region of the brain because, at least they didn't say this, but going back to the point that we've made, because it's an integrated process yep, and it's a dynamic interactive process and it is an iterative learning process and many other things that we could say. All right, so other scientific views that we want to kind of talk about on this this topic now. Yeah, and I think that this is where I really want to sort of drive home where this whole thing has been going is understanding why it works and how we deal with it. And wh by why it works, I mean, how does it come to be and why does it happen? And we talked about that feedback loop part of it, but uh, let's just go very generally understanding how behaviors get started in the first place. Yeah. Okay. Why we do what we do. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> Okay, so... First is understanding very simply the idea, going back to the operant learning theory where you have this positive-negative reinforcement relationship, yep. okay? And yes, there's, there's cognition is wrapped up inside of this, okay? So cognition is part of it, and uh, it, it's accounted for in the same way. Okay. So, and what I mean by that is that we have this relationship with the interaction in our environment where we learn and we process that information that uh, affects the way that we interact with it in subsequent attempts and iterations. Okay. And so this goes back to this idea that there's this good feeling thing, positive reinforcement, avoiding anxiety and shame by doing more of that thing, negative reinforcement, and that we have a capacity to use our language to go beyond just the immediate relationship of whatever the cues are and that feeling of either good or, or not good or avoiding bad things. Yeah. And that we can create the same sort of cues using our language, even in the absence of that. So what I mean by that is if we think of this in terms of that fear of loss, that yep. seems to be a relatively important characteristic of the patterns of behavior that are labeled as, as hoarding most yes. of the time. Yes. Okay. Losing things that have this assigned or associated value, whether or not it's really there, is a legitimate experience of pretty much everyone. We don't want to lose the things that are important to us. Yeah. If I tell you right now that your car is outside being stolen, you're going to have an emotional reaction to that that is like, oh, no. Yeah, exactly. I, I hope and probably yeah. more serious than how I just portrayed it. Yeah. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but what's interesting is that we can use our language and, and that allows us, and I should use scare quotes here because yeah. allow is not really. An, what's happening. Yeah. I mean, it is what's happening, but it's it, it makes it sound more positive. Yeah. It facilitates our ability to categorize all things as having that same relative value. And therefore, we can react to them as if everything had the same value. And therefore, the loss of everything is equal to the loss of anything else. Yeah. So I'm saying this thing was just as bad as this other thing. Exactly. And that me saying that through my words, my thoughts... Or actually make those things seem and I react to them as if they are now the same thing. Exactly. The thing that didn't mean anything is now just as bad as that thing that actually was really bad to me. So yeah, if we have um, the association of the my car has a lot of value, it's really important to me, yep. and I see there's this discounted violin, and I don't play violin, but that's a really good price on that thing, and so I acquire the violin. Now that violin is just as important to me as my car, I gotta hold on to it. Yeah. Right? Sounds crazy, but that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We can bridge that gap. We can impose those same types of relative values um, simply by uh, reacting to a generalized set of cues that mm -hmm. are acquisition of things is good, right? We've created this category. It doesn't really necessarily matter. We can elevate or uh, decrease the relative value of something simply in the way that we think about it. Can you hoard money? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Especially I just saw some parallels there when you were talking. Yeah, no, no. But like, that makes me wonder. How do we wonder, not bring this up yet? Especially people who collect like 
money so, that is like really old and maybe not useful anymore. Or you're like Fidel Castro and you can't put it in a bank, so you just like shove it in houses. Yeah. Or thinking of Breaking Bad where he has literally something the size of an entire king size bed just made out of hundred dollar bills. Or here. I wanted to say Pablo Escobar. Can we just try to drop Pablo Escobar in there? Yeah. Okay. Do you think that'll work? Probably. Okay. All right. Now, I think that probably most people have the experience of holding on to some things beyond their relative utility, right? Yeah. And so for me, for example, I had this experience when I was a teenager. I had gone to a gas station, and this was actually in a time prior to maybe most of our listeners even having this experience, (laughs) (laughs) but where you didn't have to pay for gas first. And so what it was is you would you would get your gas and you go inside and pay for what you got. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, I actually did pay at the pump with a credit card in this particular instance. So it just takes off whatever money you pay the for. The good it. old days where you could trust everyone in society. Huh? Yeah. Some, something. Uh, but anyway, um, so I, I paid at the pump with a credit card and I got a receipt for that. And then what happened is later that day, um, I needed to write down my email address for someone and I'd happen to have the receipt in my pocket. Well, so there was email addresses these days, but you did that at the gas station. Yes. Interesting. So I wrote down my email address and I gave it to someone and they took that receipt and they left. Well, what happened was later the gas station called the police and said that I stole the gas and they had some video footage or whatever. And I went in and asked to see the footage and they showed me the footage and it wasn't me and it wasn't my car. And I was yeah. trying to point that out to them and they're like, well, you know, we know it was you and we know you took the gas. And I'm like, why am I here then? Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, so I had to pay for the gas a second time and, uh, and I didn't have the receipt to back it up. Oh, then that was, that was the thing. And so after that, I've kept every single receipt I've ever gotten. And I've always asked for a receipt just in case someone tries to tell me that I stole something because I've never stolen anything as far as I can remember. It's yeah. just something I've always been really, really afraid of doing. Yeah. Even though like, I've looked at things and been like, oh, I could just take this and get away with it. You know, <laughs> I, I never have because I'm I was so afraid of well, I mean also I felt like, like all it was, those all those five hundred dollar textbooks that we look at now and then. Yeah. Man. Right. Now I, I want to point out that it wasn't just that I was afraid of the punishment of stealing things. Yeah. I generally felt that stealing things was wrong. Yes. But yes, there are yes. times when it's sort of like, who's this gonna hurt, really? You know? Yeah. Um, and then there was a little bit of temptation, but I wasn't going to do it anyway. Yeah. Besides the point. We've all felt it. It's all right, Abraham. The point being is like I now have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of receipts that have I've been saving up over the <laughs> last couple of decades because of that experience that I'm just like, I'm always going to have them on me. And I actually, to my credit, I went through and purged like a whole bunch of them just a few months ago. Yeah. And it, it had been like 15 years. But I was going to say, I've known you for nine years and never knew you hoarded receipts. Yep. That's the thing. And again, but it wasn't really something that I wasn't, I wasn't ashamed of it. It wasn't a problem. I felt like it was very practical to have. Yeah, no, it definitely was like not, it was still functional. You were functioning. And then I really did look at this and feel like, you know, I'm probably not that worried about having like receipts that have now been like this was from 10 or 15 years ago. So <laughs> yeah. probably doesn't matter anymore. No one's coming for me about this stuff. I should just throw those away. And I did. I, I tend to keep my things in like chapters of my life. So it was That's like, fair. I was in uh, Tonopah, Nevada, the first 18 years of my life. I kept everything then. And then I purged everything to go to school. Yeah. And then I purged everything when I went to grad school. And then I was coming back and I was like, I can't fit all this stuff. I had stacks. I just remembered this stacks of articles. So when you go to grad school, pro tip, sometimes there's free printing, in which case you can, pro tip, I tried as hard as I could to get all of my money back from my student loans and printing. Ha! That's awesome. There was no way that I actually pulled it off. Yeah. I had stacks up to my hip in grad school um, in like a room, I don't know, I had like eight or ten of them from just articles that I'd printed and read. Jeez. And then I moved them to the next house because I was like, man, I read all these and I marked them all up and I want to like keep these. Yeah. And then when I was leaving, it actually was like hard to throw those away. Sure. I couldn't fit them in like what I had for trailer space to move back out west. Right. So interesting. I forgot about that. I They didn't impact. I don't know. This is really interesting now because I was so into trying to maximize as much as I could with my grad school experience. Yeah. That those sort of things, like I wasn't necessarily hoarding those, but like functionally, I kind of like messed up other parts of my life because I was so into graduate school and like trying to capitalize on those opportunities that it could actually like have affected a little bit functionally in my life. And again, that comes back to presumably most people have some level of experience of holding on to things past the relative utility. Yeah. Right. Um, And 
another thing that happens is it's relatively common for people when they move to purge some of that stuff. And a lot of times for hoarders, they don't. And so again, I want to get, I want to make sure that we're really careful to not suggest that people who experience this hoarding disorder, that their experience is not legitimate and that they're just like a more extreme version of normal people. Yeah. Yeah. They're there. These are people who are legitimately suffering and, and we'll get to what it means to deal with this in terms of treatment. But, um, I just want to make sure we don't come off as downplaying that. But the one last aspect I wanted to hit on in terms of why this occurs from that scientific angle, um, and well, at least the, the objective angle is this, um, we, we hit this from the like avoiding loss end. Yes. But there's the other important flip side of that, which is what is gained when people are doing hoarding. Yes, right? exactly. Because this is being maintained by a very powerful cycle of reinforcement. And so that thinking about this in terms of the the price tags and the the patterns that are that are developed become a habit for these people. And all of the cues that exist in their environment become part of a routine of signaling these acquisition behaviors. So that people move throughout their normal day and they just kind of acquire stuff and they also prevent the um, the elimination of the things that they have acquired or they avoided at least. Um, and that th there's this cycle of reinforcement that's embedded in those patterns of behaviors as well. And I was thinking about this and just to really speculate wildly, yes. we're, we're in Conjectureville right now. We are. Yes. Yeah. Conjectureville <laughs> just was entered. <laughs> um, <laughs> Population three. Yeah. You, Abraham and myself. Yes. Yeah. You being the listener. Yes. All right. And so, that one thing that might happen is that these things that have this reinforcing value when they're acquired, those aren't necessarily associated with other more powerful reinforcers. And when you have more and more of them, they might have a slow decay in the relative value uh, to you. And so what might happen for some people and maybe not for everyone and maybe not even at all, again, we're conjecturing here <laughs> is that you sort of are, it's almost like that chasing the high, right? Yeah. It's, it's like, well, this doesn't feel as good this time when I'm getting this, I'm going to get more stuff to mm -hmm. really get in that feeling of like, I'm acquiring things that yeah. I like so much. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible that maybe some people experience that. I don't know. We're just making stuff up at this point. All right. Let's get into some treatment. So you still have this diminishing value is the point here. Yeah, that was and the... so to compete with it, you get more stuff uh, to, to try say... to get about the same amount of value. So you're just saying everything I said with fewer words and more succinctly. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. trying to summarize. Real no, quick. no, that you I should I should have just <laughs> said it that way. Um, okay. So all right, treatment. Uh, there are no no pharmaceutical treatments that are actually designed specifically to deal with hoarding. Yes. That being said, a lot of people who end up getting a diagnosis for hoarding end up taking some types of anti-anxiety medication sometimes. Makes sense with the history of it co-occurring? Right, yeah. Yes. Exactly. And so this is a approach that can happen for people, especially who deal with that shame-anxiety portion of this around their hoarding. Now, I don't know that anybody's looked into it in this way, but it does make me wonder if what might happen is that people might become complacent with their hoarding and just feel like, oh, this feels good. I'm cool with this. My hoard is my hoarding is good. Yeah. yeah. And then actually ramp it up, you know? Yeah. Because I, I don't know. That probably isn't the case. Yeah. I'm just saying that like it makes me wonder if for some people that experience if that could happens, be yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Uh, but th that in, is to say... Back in Conjectureville. Back in Conjectureville. Uh, but no, going back to the, the real point that there are no drugs that exist that could that are designed specifically to treat hoarding disorder. There are drugs that exist that some people take that are supposed to treat sort of correlated experiences that can come along with yeah. hoarding disorder. So the only thing that is really used in the research that has been looked at for the most part is... Um, talk psychotherapy yep. and specifically cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, which we haven't talked about too much on here, but originally the way that it sort of works is there's the, the approach of trying to change the way people think about things. Yes. That's now, a large majority of yeah, most of them. But it also, in, in the behavioral part of this involves that there is some kind of action that you get them to do that you build up a new habit and pattern of behaviors. Yes, correct. So those are supposed to work together, and that's one of the reasons that's supposed to be as effective as it is. Yep. Okay. Now, with 
going back to the interview we did with Dr. Steve Hayes, um, which came out a couple months ago now. Um, great episode, if I do say so myself. Almost six months ago. Wow. Yeah. When we recorded it, not when it came out, because I think it came out in January. Still, this yep. is this is a while down the road. That's true. Time's okay. flying, man. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway. Um, Oh, I guess at the time this comes out, it may have been six months. Yeah. Good point. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, what he talks about and the research bears this out is that idea of changing thoughts actually is not necessarily the most effective way to have people change the way that they interact with those thoughts. Quick example. I'm going to tell you not to think of something. Try your hardest not to think about it. Yep. You ready? Yep. Pink elephant. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Too late. <laughs> we used that one actually before. Have we? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Okay. And some other interesting research looked at just building cooperation behaviors with, um, with uh, this one was with one particular individual. So it was sort of a case study yeah. um, who was, um, who wasn't doing the, these hoarding behaviors. And this is an older adult with dementia, but what they found simply was that by increasing cooperation in general with this person, uh, facilitated handing over, um, an increased number of items so that they could help decrease some of the clutter and um, presumably created a context in which they had a, a higher quality of life because they had so much cooperation and intera interaction nice. with other people. Yeah, it was kind of cool. And so they were able to sort of facilitate that. So that that is another potentially effective behavioral treatment that exists um, out in the research literature. Interesting. Yeah. All right. I think it's time to bring this home. Yeah, Take let's. home points. Yep. All right. I'm just going to kind of go off the cuff here because I didn't write any down. Okay. So... Number one, it has to function like impact your functionality in the world. Yep. So just uh, me and my collection of old jeans of like thirty jeans that I have that I never wear. That's not actually impacting my world much. I just need to throw the things out. Yeah, that's right. Fair. Potentially, maybe, or they can just stay there because it's not impacting my life. Which I think actually brings up an important point that um, hoarding is characterized at least by the um, the collection of things and the fear. Not one thing that I saw again is that whole this it's an acquiring and the inability to control acquiring. That's not part of the DSM diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, the, the DSM diagnosis is that persistent difficulty in getting rid of things. Okay, um, and so. It's the extent to which those things, they lose their utility and it impacts their quality of life um, because they, they've acquired so much and it, it's creating oftentimes this sense of distress and anxiety and, and shame and that sort of thing. And that this is maintained at least in some part to the extent to which there is the association between the value of things that are legitimate and the uh, associating the same level or heightened level of value to things that would not necessarily be considered as having the same legitimate value um, for a, a lot of reasons. And that is a subjective thing, but it, it's useful to at least conceptually frame it that way. And then also the so feedback loop of reinforcement that can exist in these overall patterns. Yes. And that there's not much in the way of treatment for this. But the thing is that approaching these people with a, a level of compassion and understanding that's not judgmental because that can yes. just increase that cycle. Yes, 100%. That's what I want to add on. Perfect. Perfect. Well said. I think that's it. Yeah, this is a super long episode. So thanks for sticking with us. If you made it to here, we appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I guess with that said, this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. And we are out. listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at wwd podcast on your favorite social media platforms you can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.